Good evening, folks. Good evening. I trust the Lord has been with you over the past year and is blessed. We're going to get started, even though there are going to be more kind of coming in, I suppose, as we begin, but we'll get started anyway. Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, as this new Sabbath comes to us, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us throughout this entire Sabbath day. We pray that you will help us to understand your word more clearly and that we will be more effective witnesses each day of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our schedule for the weekend, so you're kind of aware of what we're going to do, is we will have tonight's meeting, and then tomorrow morning at church time, and then tomorrow afternoon we will have two meetings, one by me and one by Matthew. As you remember, Matthew's meetings on the animals, and he'll have one in the afternoon, and that will be our program for this weekend. All right. I'm going to start with an editorial that appeared in our union paper. Um, Elder Tom Mostert has been the president of the Pacific Union Conference for a long time. He's recently retired. And before he retired, he wrote this editorial in our union paper. I want you to hear it. More and more Adventist members and some pastors are modifying their faith according to what is or is not convenient to believe and practice. I have noticed most of the modifications are in the area of sanctification, the process of progressive development of a godlike mind and lifestyle. Few tamper with the basic free gift of salvation. We tend to like justification, forgiveness, and we're not so thrilled with sanctification, holy living. He continues, a person is raised with the guilt trip of legalism hanging around their neck in the name of sanctification. It robbed them of peace of mind and made religion an intolerable burden to bear. But they are more enlightened now and have simply accepted the free gift of salvation provided through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In general, they hope to become more like him in thought and lifestyle, but any worry about specifics simply destroys their peace of mind. So if it is important, God will bring it to mind. Otherwise, they practice sanctification only in general terms. And then his conclusion, total acceptance of the traditional Adventist understanding of sanctification is zero. Pretty interesting conclusion. Got right to the heart of the Seventh-day Adventist salvation problem, we have reduced sanctification to an add-on to salvation. Now we're, sa we're saved, and then we'll talk about sanctification, which means that it's nice to have, but not so essential, which makes it zero value in terms of salvation. Then he brought up health. Someone decides they will believe in general healthful living, but not worry about the details. Since various studies show the benefits of red wine, and they like the taste and relaxation qualities of it anyway, it is incorporated into their diet, in moderation, of course. Likewise with coffee. Conclusion, when the list is finished, the incorporation of the traditional Adventist health message in their lifestyle is zero. And I just find this an amazing assessment by a church leader. Most of them remain silent on subjects like this. Talked about evangelism. He said intentional sharing of the Adventist faith, faith with others, zero. Then he talked about prophecy. 
Where once it seemed important to have a modern-day prophet to warn and instruct us as we prepare for the second coming of Jesus, it is now inconvenient to accept Ellen White's pointed counsel about personal changes. So we look for reasons not to read her. Some say she might have simply copied large portions of the material in her books. The church was so legalistic in the past, she probably just flowed with the times. Now our emphasis is on salvation through Jesus, full and complete. His conclusion, total serious consideration of the prophetic messages from Ellen White, zero. Now I couldn't have said it more accurately than our former union president said it. Uh, this is, by the way, the major problem of our times, our relationship to the writings of Ellen White. What do you have left, he said? These are but a few examples of a long list of thought patterns developing in members' lives. You could add belief in absolutes, the unique mission of the Adventist church, and faithfulness in tithing. In the end, each area equals zero. A church whose distinctive truths have been zeroed out is left with nothing different from the community church down the street. The unique Seventh-day Adventist message and mission is reduced to zero. Now I'll tell you, I had a hard time comprehending what I had read in this uh, particular editorial because it's precisely what I've been saying for the past 20 years. And I have been labeled divisive and critical and pastors have been warned about having me come to their churches on various occasions. Has a new day of honesty come in the Seventh-day Adventist Church where this can appear from a union conference president in one of our papers? and uh, saying some things that some of us have been concerned about for quite a while. I'm going to share another thing with you tonight. This comes from another author that uh, most of you are acquainted with because he is the editor of the Sabbath School Lessons, Clifford Goldstein. This was in the Adventist Review. Try this one. Despite all our well-meaning plans for revival and mission, not much is going to change in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We'll continue to have phenomenal growth in some places, while in others we'll plod along, bogged down by the aberrant the ideologies and internecine squabbles among us. We can talk revival and unity until the moon shrivels, but not much is going to change. Once again, a little refreshing honesty instead of the public relation platitudes that we're accustomed to hearing all the time. He continues, not much, that is, until the Sabbath Sunday crisis. I can already see eyes rolling among those who regard talk of the Sabbath Sunday crisis as antiquated Adventism from an outdated and irrelevant context. And we wonder why growth is slow in some places. Funny that folks should think this way, because in my 26 years as an Adventist, never has our theology about the mark of the beast seemed so clear and relevant. Now, however solid the theology of the mark, it is admittedly hard to see, with the facts on the ground as they are now, how the Sabbath Sunday issue could arise, especially worldwide. But so what? When I first joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1980, the United States faced a hostile 290 million person empire armed to the teeth with enough nuclear weapons to incinerate the world ten times over and roll over the rubble with tanks and armored vehicles. As long as the Soviet Union existed, the United States couldn't kick Fidel Castro out of Cuba, much less enforce the mark of the beast on the world. 
I remember as a new Adventist struggling with the question of how, confronted with the sober reality of the Soviet Union, final events could ever unfold as expected. What, was the Soviet Union going to just disappear or something? My point's simple. Radical changes can happen overnight. If the Soviet military behemoth could fall apart before our eyes, an idea that seemed inconceivable just two years before it happened, then final events can quickly unfurl as we believe, regardless of how implausible they appear now. We will wake up one morning, and the scenario we have talked about, preached about, and warned the world about for more than 150 years will be smirking at us with iron teeth. And when it does, everything will change among us. Everything. Until then, not much. You know, I'm afraid he's absolutely right as far as the organized church is concerned. But it's got to be much different for individual Adventists. If we wait for the Sabbath Sunday crisis to hit before making any changes in our lives, we've waited one sign too long. Revival, character development... They aren't going to change when the Sabbath Sunday crisis hits. It'll only reveal what's in our characters. It won't change them at that time. And we need to be preparing now. Carelessness can't be ruled out by sudden fear at a moment of crisis. So, my friends, is it hopeless? Will the status quo continue? Will there be no change in individual hearts either? Will zero plus zero continue to be zero? Well, let's take a little bit of a look tonight at some things that might be of some help. Turn with me to um, the book of Exodus. And we're going to look at a a little picture of what uh, might be true for us in terms of our lives today. Exodus chapter 32. Perhaps we can learn from the story of Moses and Aaron. Didn't God know that Aaron would not be a solid leader of his people? Didn't he know that he would cave in in a crisis, that he wouldn't pull through? Here's a statement that I'm going to read first from Review and Herald, volume 5, it's uh, page 493, it is February 4, 1909. Long before, the Lord could have revealed that Aaron could not be depended upon, but for wise and holy purposes he permitted the evil to develop. He suffered this shameful representation to come to its height. The Lord sees what is in the hearts of men. At times, He permits evils to take place that He may prevent still greater evils that would appear unless He permitted the designs hidden in human hearts to work out. Men who ought to stand as firm as a rock to principle are treading in the same path that the Israelites followed. There are men who are acting the part of Aaron at the very time when every soul should be working to seal the law among God's disciples. They are building up the very things that God has specified should not be built up. What's the principle here? God allows people to have free choice even to make evil plans in the hope that thinking souls will understand cause and effect. What causes 
what effect, and we can understand it and make better choices. In other words, God does not choose for us. He wants us to make choices that will produce change. All right, let's read Exodus 32, beginning with verse 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God, and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath, and repent of this evil against thy people. Look over at verse 32, what he said. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and then he stops right there. And if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Moses, more than anyone else, revealed the character of God by putting the reputation of Yahweh above his own salvation. Is God's name going to be upheld? So once again, God sometimes allows false ideas and policies to invade his church. He allows that to test the choices of church members, those who are part of God's church. This being the case, how should we relate to apostasy in the church, particularly if it is being promoted by modern errands? Instead of swinging to either extreme of either compromising or criticism, we're counseled to pray humbly for God to overrule and to step in as he needs to. In the secret place of prayer, we are told to sigh and cry for the abominations that are being done in the land. That's from Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, and we need to practice that. Here's another statement, Testimonies, volume 5, page 77 and 82. Who knows? but that the preachers who are faithful, firm, and true may be the last who shall offer the gospel of peace to our unthankful church. When holy hands bear the ark no longer, woe will be upon the people. Yet we do not despair, she said. God has promised that where the shepherds are not true, he will take charge of the flock himself. The days of purification of the church are hastening on apace. God will have a people pure and true. In the mighty sifting soon to take place, we shall be better able to measure the strength of Israel. And you know, folks, right now, we have no idea what the strength of the remnant is. We just have no idea. And that is going to have to be revealed through this difficult process. Evangelism 2.15, when men begin to weave in the human threads to compose the pattern of the web, the Lord is in no hurry. He waits until men shall lay down their own human inventions and will accept the Lord's way and the Lord's will. We get frustrated, but the Lord is patient. God is allowing compromise, and He is allowing apostasy within His remnant people so that it will be crystal clear that Men's ways do not work. That's what he's waiting for us to get, to understand and make it clear in our lives. Here's another statement. Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1088. 
The inhabitants of unfallen worlds and the heavenly universe are watching with an intense interest the conflict between good and evil. They rejoice as Satan's subtleties one after another are discerned and met with it is written. I think God is wanting us to develop discernment, my friends, so we can tell the difference between God's ways and Satan's counterfeits. He also tests us to see what our character is really like. Is it vengeance and power like Satan, or is it love and self-sacrifice like God? He needs to see which way we are going. And so God is just patiently waiting, patiently waiting for His purpose in creating this church to be realized. Desire of Ages 680 is one of the famous ones. Christ designs that heaven's order, heaven's plan of government, heaven's divine harmony shall be represented in His church on earth, thus in His people he is glorified. So it, at the present time, God is allowing Satan to demonstrate his government of force and control in some portions of his church. And we can't be so frustrated by that that we walk away in despair. That is not the answer. God, Christ is waiting for two great demonstrations. First, he is waiting for a demonstration of his character in each individual, in our hearts to see what we will be like. Desire of Ages 671. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character of His people. The honor of God is at stake here. Can God do the impossible in His people? And the second great demonstration. All the universe is waiting for a demonstration of God's government in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we're told. The way God's heavenly government works. Christ is not merely waiting for individuals to perform their solo parts perfectly. We are not soloists in this endeavor. He's working as a concert master to produce a worldwide choir that will sing in harmony and unison together on the same note. And that's the great second demonstration so that the listening universe can, see, can hear the notes that God intended when he set up this movement. A song of Moses and the Lamb is not a solo. It's a concert that all can understand this is God's way. This is God's people. A perfectly united church is Christ's final demonstration of his own divinity. As John 17, 23 says, that the world may know that thou hast sent me. That's the demonstration. To help others and especially the corporate church, work together in sacrificial harmony and demonstrate heaven's government will motivate us, I think, far beyond any personal desire for salvation. This is way bigger than my salvation. This is for the eventual vindication of God's name, His character. And one more statement, Testimonies, Volume 5, page 210. At the time when the danger and depression of the church are greatest, the little company who are standing in the light, will be sighing and crying for the abominations that are done in the land. But more especially will their prayers arise in behalf of the church because its members are doing after the manner of the world. The earnest prayers of this faithful few will not be in vain. Shall I read that last sentence again? The earnest prayers of this faithful few will not be in vain. So just don't give up. There is a purpose to all the things that we're seeing around us. And God has a plan, just as he has always had with his people. Let's look for a moment 
at what God's purpose was in starting his corporate church. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25, when God began for the first time a corporate body. Exodus chapter 25. And verse 8, the classic verse. Exodus 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And that phrase, among them, translates more literally, in their midst, that I may dwell in their midst. God was to dwell physically with them. In other words, the God who thought up, designed, and created space, time, and the universe, that God, is going to come down into this earth, into a middle of a bunch of people in the desert and live in their middle, in their midst, right among them, with them, 100% of the time. That's only the beginning, though. The God who dwelt in their midst is dwelling with the Hebrews. And who are they? A bunch of ex-slaves who had been so beaten down by centuries of slavery that you know, it would have been an unbelievable enough condescension for God to come dwell among the Hittites or the great nations or the Egyptians or the Babylonians or some nation, but instead he did it among a horde of the homeless vagabonds that didn't have any place to go and were trying to get to a better land. It's kind of like today as if the Lord had his sanctuary built in a refugee camp somewhere in our world. It was pretty close to that. You see, before this time, God had always worked through individuals and through families. That was the way he had worked his message out. But now and for the rest of time, until the second coming, he would work through a corporate body of one kind or another, whether a nation or a church. And that would be his dwelling place, his special home on this earth. Even before we get to any kind of prophetic time charts or historical dates or rise and fall of empires, the sanctuary message, the sanctuary message in the Old Testament revealed God's desire to be part of us, right here with us, 100% of the time. And then you bring in the New Testament. Jesus, the Creator, the one who made all things, dwelt among us. Let's look up the text. It's so important. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. This Jesus who comes to dwell among us. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And did you remember the group he came to live among? This group, this corporate body who was in full apostasy about three or four years away from rejection? He comes to live in their midst and he takes upon him the form of a servant. This is, you know, when you think about it, a pretty amazing thing that God is doing, coming to live in people who don't quite get it most of the time, and yet he's here. Let's try another text, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1. Verse 23. 
Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. God with us. That's about the biggest risk that God has ever taken. Use your imagination with me now and go back about uh, nine months and one day before the manger scene in Bethlehem and try to think about what Jesus was thinking one day before Mary. Try to fathom what the mood in heaven was like right at that time. God was going to do something that had never been done before in all eternity, had never been tried before. He was going to enter the womb of a teenage girl, emerge through the birth canal, where flesh and blood interact with people three and a half years as a man, once he had grown up, get betrayed and beaten and mocked and killed, and then raise himself from the dead, all of God packed into one little baby who couldn't even think for itself during that period of time. What if he failed? What would, what would be lost? The answer, is, the answer is simple and pretty terrifying. Everything. Everything. Not just you and me in our little world. Not our planet or our solar system, but everything would be lost if he failed in his mission. Can you even begin what existence would be like if Satan ran this universe, the whole universe? Ellen White writes, He took the infinite risk. The issues at stake are beyond the comprehension of men. That's a pretty amazing statement. The issues at stake are beyond the comprehension of men. Signs of the Times, January 5, 1915. She wrote that just before her death, January 5, 1915. Then it's one thing to take a risk in a supportive environment, but quite another in an environment where enemies find out about your birth and send contract killers to take care of you before you have a chance to even survive. Again, Ellen White reminds us, the temptations that assailed Christ were as much more intense and subtle than those which assail man. Christ had to meet the whole confederacy of evil, the united forces of the adversary of God and man. That's the same reference. Everyone together. The Bible says God is not the author of chaos. He's perfect in every way. Then he came here and saw everything from the atoms that we are surrounded with and are part of tainted with sin. Everything is warped. Everything is messed up. Jesus not only took a risk that could cost the universe everything, he carried it out in an obscenely wicked environment that he had to live in. Let's read one more text. This one from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 43. And verse 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. All right? Are we really going to be able to demonstrate that that is true, the true God? We're the same people, really, bottom line, who didn't believe him, who mocked him, who killed him. We break the law. We're chock full of sin. 
And yet, because of Jesus' risk by faith, he chose to turn us into the greatest asset for his kingdom, to tell the truth about the character of God to the universe. This may be the most risky thing of all that God did because of what he had to work with. Noah, remember Noah? By faith, he filled a floating box. He filled it with animals. By faith, he preached 120 years. He experienced constant rejection. By faith, he survived not just 40 days and 40 nights, but more than five months in an ark with family. After he got out of the boat, he looked at the rainbow, and he got drunk. That's the untold story. That's the one that uh, they kind of didn't want you to hear as a kid. You've heard of Noah's Ark. Now it's time for the other story, Noah's Vineyard. Let's read it. Genesis chapter 9. Remembering, these are the ones God is risking everyone with. Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. These are the ones who are going to prove that the great God of the universe is good and true. Genesis 9, verse 20. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. So let's look at this man associated with ark and righteousness and faith. The dusty wind is blowing in the tent. The, wind, the flaps are open for all to see. Noah's robes are kind of strewn around on the ground. He's lying on the ground amid sand and, bu and bugs buzzing around his head. How does something like this happen to a great Bible hero? Look at what he had done. Perhaps more important, how does it happen to us? Because it does. It does happen to us. One minute we are God's number one and he is ours. The next minute hard we fall and fast we fall and we're into embarrassment and shame. But think again about Noah. Think again. While it would be a blessing to emerge from the ark alive, how would it feel to look out on a world knowing that everything is gone? Everything that you had known before is gone and nothing is the same anymore. Noah left the ark and then he planted the seeds that produced the fruit that created the environment that caused him to fall. It's about sowing and it's about reaping. We perform it as well, don't we? I've wondered if Adventists have a special way in which we plant the wrong kinds of seeds that lead us to fall, and then we wonder why we slip and fall when we just plant those seeds. Do the words we use plant good seeds or bad seeds in our families? Uh, do we affirm worldly culture instead of God? Noah, once he left the ark, reverted to the same practices that caused God to destroy the whole world by a flood. Temporarily, we're glad it's temporary, but he did. He went back to those same practices. So what do we do when we've planted bad seeds and we've harvested sin? Some well-meaning believers think that a quick, I'm sorry, is good enough, and we're off the hook. Everything is good. But you know what? Sometimes spouses are cheated on. Sometimes people are victims of abuse. Congregations of compromising pastors, for instance, betrayed friends. Do they need more than just a quick apology to get trust back in the picture? Not just a quick, I'm sorry. The only action that can make recovery possible is the obvious, openly expressed contrition of the wrongdoer that he really understands what he or she has done. Unless there is evidence of a changed heart, 
the vestiges of mistrust will remain no matter how many times we say I'm sorry because it's real. What better place to identify the steps to restoration that must take place than the story of the greatest repenter of all? And I think you know whom I'm talking about. Good old David. I'm glad his story's in the Bible. He's got a lot to teach us about this quick-fix generation that we live in. You just know that after he sinned, murmurs pervaded the city until just about everyone knew of his adultery and I suppose suspected a murder too. I bet that rumor got around as well. The moral climate of the city, we know this, it descended, emboldening the ungodly, grieving the faithful. Cynicism reigned because of David's sin at that time. God was too kind to, live, to leave David in his virtual reality world in which he thought everything was just fine. I don't have to repent. The prophet Nathan very cleverly led David to the emotional breaking point that changed his life for the rest of his life. It was a prophetic rebuke designed to slap a king to his senses that poured out of the lips of God's servant that day, and it worked. Because of God's amazing grace, a heartbreaking sorrow for sin found itself within that king, and he made it a, a real, genuine repentance, perhaps the most famous repentance of all time that the Bible records. Um, today, that repentance, I think, gives some, hopes to, some hope to us. Follow in the footsteps of David, and God will save you just like he saved David. What are some of the principles? You must confess your sin in all its gory detail to God. Don't leave anything out. Whatever has happened, don't gloss it over. Don't put a false front on it. Just say it as it is. Put it all out before God. Why do you have to give him the facts he already knows? He already knows what the facts are because he needs to hear it from your lips and you need to get it off your chest, 100%. Again from Ellen White, true confession is always of a specific character and acknowledges particular sins. Steps to Christ 38, always specific, never general. Confession of sin to the one we have sinned to get increases our awareness of what damage we have caused. David said, remember, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Well, he sinned against a few other people, but that was the real sin, the bottom line sin. All right, then, we will seek restoration with those we have hurt. We're not going to ignore, ignore that step. This step is often skipped because it's painful. We don't like to go to someone else and say how badly we acted toward them. I talked to the Lord about it, and it's fine, we think. It's all taken care of. No, it isn't. The depth of our repentance toward God will be measured by the depth of our repentance toward the one we have wronged. We'd better make sure not to leave that step out. We will confess to them the very sins that have caused them pain, even if they already know what those sins are. If it's a public sin, it needs to be publicly acknowledged, and that's maybe the hardest of all. Only when the witnesses of our sin see the depth of our repentance can trust begin to rebuild. Mercy is supplicated. It is never demanded, either from people or from God. Many don't realize that David's sin was before him for the rest of his life. Every minute of the rest of his life. Remember those Psalms, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32? They were read continually in church services as a reminder of their king's sin and his repentance. That was a psalm, a, a, a song 
in their worship service. Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets 7.25, Instead of endeavoring to conceal his guilt, he desired that others might be instructed by the sad history of his fall. He desired that others might learn how God had been merciful to him and given him a second chance. The humiliation obviously was not comfortable for him, but it was a light burden in comparison to the weight of the guilt that he carried around for that full year. So there is an example of what our repentance has to be like. Now, if repentance for personal sin is vital in restoration, so is repentance for sins in the family of God, the body through which God will ultimately be vindicated. Remember the Israelites? They were in Babylonian captivity. Things had not been going well. They were there because they had transgressed God's law. They had broken God's law. During their 70 years of captivity, most of the Israelites began gradually to accept the Babylonian lifestyle. It was a good life. The life of devotion and strict obedience to God was getting a little bit fuzzy. They started building houses. They even started marrying women of the Babylonian a nation. Let's read a text. Ezra chapter 9. Ezra 9 verses 1 and 2. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. But that, for they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass." Well, Ezra's day is a long way past, but I wonder if his practices or the practices of his day are pretty close to the practices of our day today. We have somehow mixed with the people of our land and our culture, just as during the time of the prophet Ezra and the things that were going on during that time. Let's continue. Ezra chapter 9, again, this time verses 5 and 6. Ezra 9 verses 5 and 6. And at the evening sacrifice I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up into the heavens. Did you notice that Ezra didn't pray just for himself, but he prayed for his whole people? This was a prayer for his people. Um, the infilling of the Holy Spirit does lead to confession and renunciation of sins. And perhaps we need something called, maybe for us and for our church, Christian meditation. Now that is not Eastern meditation in which the desire is to empty the mind so that our mind is, is, is not thinking. Christian meditation seeks to channel our thoughts to God's Word, His plan, and our failures to meet that plan. To think about it to really think about our relationship to God. 
It involves commitment, it involves information. It centers on what God has said, what God has done, and what God has created in contrast to the way we're living our life. And just maybe, just maybe, we'll have a better perspective. Let's get a little specific for just a moment now. One area of our personal and corporate relationship with God in which we need reminding about what is sin among us. Now, I believe we should welcome all attempts to rescue the Sabbath from legalism and human-made regulations and to restore it to its spirit and purpose. But it seems altogether pro uh, uh, appropriate to focus now and then on what is proper Sabbath-keeping, how to keep God's holy day holy. If we take this vital element for, uh, for granted, the time will come when our Sabbath observance will be very little different from what most Christians observe on Sunday. I'm going to share a little bit with you of um, one of our former associate editors of the Adventist Review, Roy Adams. He writes of encountering the Sabbath for the first time while he was boarding at an Adventist home. In Sister Davidson's house, everyone had their chores done Friday afternoon, working together toward the single goal of having everything done by sundown. By sundown, the house was clean, the showers had been taken, our clothes were ready, the Sabbath meal had been fixed, and as everyone gathered around the piano in the living room for sundown worship, the aroma of freshly baked bread filled the entire house. For someone just getting acquainted with Sabbath-keeping, I couldn't have asked for a better example. Sabbath was a time for wearing your best, whatever that was. You dressed in a manner that showed you valued the day enough to save the best you had for it. It's at Sister Davidson's that I learned many of the things I now practice automatically in regard to Sabbath. Secular magazines and books on my coffee table put away or hidden from plain view. Secular radio and television off. Religious music playing or just plain quiet filling your space. Special food prepared. I learned that Sabbath is about atmosphere, about a radical change of pace, about finding space for God, about making time for special communion with Him. It's about expelling every intrusion within our power so as to create an environment in which spirituality can strengthen. When we first moved to the Washington area, I remember how proud I used to be on those Friday evenings when I would hear a certain golden voice on a local Adventist radio station announcing the coming of Sabbath. It left a beautiful echo in the ears, a good taste in the mouth, and I used to think what a powerful message for the entire capital region of the United States. But over the years, I've heard statements and announcements made on Sabbath by Adventist media sources that have left me wondering whether it signals a new low in our Sabbath sensitivity. Here's a sampling. And remembering that each of these came during Sabbath hours from Adventist media. Quote, the traffic report is brought to you by Blockbuster. Make this, and it was Friday evening, a Blockbuster night. Quote, the Barnum and Bailey Circus is coming to town Monday. Please go to our website for more information. And then on a rainy Sabbath afternoon, quote, this is great baking weather. Wish I were in my kitchen right now baking. Quote, what a beautiful day, a good time to rake the leaves and do some work around the yard. And tomorrow when you return from church, tomorrow? Quote, 
Many of you have, been, have seen the Antique Roadshow over PBS where some people with items they thought insignificant ended up being valued at $2,000 and even more. Well, there's an antique show going on today and tomorrow. You may want to check it out. The cost is $10 an item. And as the sun was setting one December Friday, the music that came on the air was chestnuts ro roasting on an open fire. And he concluded, are we losing it? Does a desire to please and be appreciated blind us to the sacredness of the Sabbath? Is there anything we can learn from our Orthodox Jewish friends, or are we simply not thinking? One of the items, well, no, this first. On the Sabbath, my activities and thoughts should be channeled in a different direction than on other days of the week, as befitting the sacredness of these special hours. If I'm a merchant, I don't do sales on Sabbath. If I'm a school teacher, I don't do class on Sabbath. If I'm an electrician, I don't string wires on Sabbath. If I'm an attorney, I don't do cases on Sabbath. And if I'm a student, I don't do books on Sabbath. And if I'm a pastor, a physician, or a nurse, then Sabbath brings a modification of my work. But when under regular circumstances, we deliberately single out the Sabbath as the time to paint Widow Jane Doe's house or cut her grass, things that could well wait until Sunday or even Wednesday, then something's wrong with that picture. Our aim always should be to free up the Sabbath from all unnecessary clutter. One of the items to come before the general conference session in Indianapolis, Indiana in 1990 was a proposal entitled Sabbath Keeping Guidelines. To the surprise of the leaders who presented it, the document ignited a firestorm of debate and controversy. In the end, the session voted only to receive the proposal, a technical way of avoiding any decision on its substance. Sabbath-keeping talk is controversial stuff. In her recent doctoral dissertation, May Ellen Cologne observed that while Adventists have close to unanimity of opinion about the time frame of the Sabbath, there is considerable divergence over the practices and motivations for Sabbath keeping. Just in passing, she noted that some Adventists play football on Sabbath. What guides me personally in all these things are certain fundamental principles of Sabbath keeping. That I don't clear my mailbox on Sabbath has nothing to do with legalism but all to do with keeping that special Sabbath atmosphere inviolate. I can't enjoy, continue enjoying the peace of Sabbath if I discover that a letter from the Internal Revenue Service has arrived. Sabbath is the most beautiful contribution we can make to our harried contemporary world. I thought that was an outstanding statement that needs to be made as just one example of the way in which corporate sin needs to be addressed among us publicly. Now it's important to remember that Sabbath keeping and all obedience are not just for our benefit, but to let a world in darkness know something about the character of God. That's our bottom line. A scientist by the name of Arthur Zajonk filled a box with light, a whole box full of light. But he did it so that none of the light reflected off of any surface. Inside the box was light, and light alone. Now, if you looked inside the box to look at the light, what would you see? What, would, what does light in and of itself look like? And guess what? It's pure darkness. Pure darkness. The darkness of empty space is exactly what you'd see inside that box. Unless it's reflecting off of something, or unless you stare directly into it, light is invisible. The light rays are invisible. Zajonk then took a rod 
and he moved it through the darkness of the box. The rod itself on the side from which the light entered was illuminated. It looked as if a thin light was shining on just the rod. Nothing else could be seen inside the box, just a thin light on the rod, even though light was everywhere in the box. Only when it reflected off of something, the rod, did it become visible, otherwise the light was invisible. And there's one final proof of that. On the earth, the sunlight pouring down uh, on the sky turns it blue or gray or red, depending on the atmosphere, the dust particles in the sky, etc., and we can see it. At noon, um, no matter if you, are, if you are on the moon at full sunlight, no matter how much sunlight pours down upon the moon when you look up, what are you going to see? Pure darkness, because there's no atmosphere on the moon. Nothing for the sun to reflect off of, and you would see the emptiness of space because the moon has no atmosphere. So, what's the parallel? Love, like light, needs something to reflect off of before it's even understood. Love alone makes no sense. There is nothing for it to reflect off of. Or perhaps darkness isn't really the absence of light, but the absence of something to reflect light. That's the problem. We can talk about love, we can talk about what it means to love, but unless we pour out that love on others and show the character of God to others, it's pretty empty. How can love with nothing to reflect upon be love? Nothing to respond to. Only by loving others does the light become manifest. Can it be seen? Otherwise, it's just darkness. Remember, the absence of light itself or the absence of something lit by light result in the same thing, darkness. Whether there's no light or whether there's nothing to reflect light, it's dark either way. Maybe though the real lesson is found in these words, therefore take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. Luke 11.35 Do you have light in us or is it darkness in us? Unless we manifest to others, it's darkness. So, there's a remedy for the plateau of Christian experience that we all tend to get into when nothing's happening, and that's to stop our introspection and focus on others for a while. Focus on sharing with others. Isaiah 58 says that people were praying and fasting, but God wanted them to serve, serve others, reach out to them. Steps to Christ, page 80. The only way to grow in grace is to help and bless others, she says. Ministry of Healing 143. Christ's method was mingling with men, coming closer to people. In a whole chapter in Steps to Christ, the work and the life. In a whole chapter in Ministry of Healing, save to serve. It's the same thing. You can't be an alone Christian. You can only show love. You can only reflect God's character as you show that to others. You know, when you think about it, at the best, our life is not very significant in terms of the big picture. Um, my life is really no bigger than a blip on a radar screen of all eternity. I'm here just for a little time, a snap of the finger between eternities. The Bible describes life repeatedly in these words, a wisp of vapor, a puff of wind, insubstantial and frail. If that's not bad enough, when it's all over, someone will sum up our entire life in a 10-minute sketch when people are going to learn about everything we've done. All of us, all of us are destined, if we're found in the end without Christ, to vanish from the face of the earth like a wisp of vapor. 
without a trace that we were ever here. What a tragedy. After living an entire life on this earth, one's allotted time is like the passing of a shadow in, eternal, in eternity. The unsaved vanish without a trace into the emptiness, the archives of eternity, just blips on the radar screen. That's not good. The paltry attempts of our lifetime, the blood, the sweat, the effort, the work, everything we put into to make our life meaningful and valuable will be lost in the farthest reaches of the universe with one notation, file not found. No longer. We have disappeared from eternity. God offers us more, doesn't he, than the, that blip on the radar screen. What a tragedy that so many people are going to be in that category. Their whole life for nothing, nothing in eternal, re in eternal values. Calvary was God's answer to our blip on the radar screen. He said it doesn't have to be that way. It can be an eternal life. A poem says he built a bridge from a cross of wood, and there where time stopped, eternity stood. That cross is eternity, if we'll just take it. And the only way our lives are going to have any lasting value is if they are lived in the palms of God's hands. That's the only way for your life and my life to have any meaning. And then reflect this light to others so that others can see what this is like. So we're going to finish tonight where we started. Is there any hope for the church that equals zero? Is there any hope? How can we stop being the problem and become part of the solution? God is calling people from every corner of the world into a nation of sold-out Christ followers who are passionate, who are determined to accomplish God's kingdom. This agenda is not about building a great denomination. It's building a nation for God, a nation of His followers. The citizens of God's nation, they understand what's at stake. They understand that they're in this world as His representatives, letting a world and a universe know what God's way is like. Everything they do serves to, to advance the agenda of God's kingdom, His world. The apostle wrote, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And I need to be part of that nation, not just a denomination, but a nation that God is calling into existence. Back in 1888, Ellen White found such resistance among the leaders of the church to the message of righteousness by faith that she and Jones, as well as others, they took their message to the people. Right to the people. God never gives up on his people. That's the lesson that all of this is about. Even though there's tragedy and, and apostasy and all kinds of problems in God's chosen corporate church that he has set into existence, he never gives up. He never gives up. And true reformers don't give up either. We have been told to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The three angels' message says, go to the world, take the message to the world. It has got to go to everyone. God is going to protect his truth. The truth is going to, to, to come out victorious. It's just going to take a lot of pain and a lot of frustration in the process. When there's a crisis, God will raise up men and women to meet that crisis. He has promised it, and he will do it. The truth will, be, will survive. It will never be de uh, destroyed. So let us determine tonight that we will be, we will be the church that makes a difference.
No longer the zero equation. Now it'll be a 100% equation. 100% obedient, 100% committed, and 100% successful. That's the church I want to be part of. The only church that's worth being part of. Only then will the church that you and I belong to, can, will it truly be said, this is God's church. This is God's church when it's working the way it should. Zero plus zero doesn't have to continue to be zero. Let's take steps. Let's do what we can. I'm going to ask you to kneel in prayer as we finish up tonight. Father in heaven, as we have looked at some things that are a bit discouraging, and we have realized that you have allowed them to happen, that you knew in advance what these things would be, and for purposes of your victory in the great controversy, you have allowed things to happen that are not your will so that we can think and choose and discern and understand your will. So Lord, I pray for the gift of discernment right now tonight. And I pray for the gift of repentance, both individually and corporately, for the sins that we have allowed to continue by our silence. And so Lord, take this church these individuals who we are the church and turn it into the most powerful witness that this world and the universe have ever seen about your character, your government, and your right to rule. And so I ask this because we are weak and you are powerful. And may we depend upon your strength, never upon our own abilities, never upon what we can accomplish. And we thank you for being merciful and being patient as we finally get the message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.